Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Andrew Sean Greer's most recent novel, Less, just won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. Still in hardcover, the book will be republished in paperback on May 22, 2018. This interview was recorded August 10th, 2017. My guest is Andrew Sean Greer, whose latest novel is Less. This is the sixth book, fifth novel. Other novels include The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells, The Story of a Marriage, The Confessions of Max Tivoli. This book is a bit different from those in that it's kind of a comic novel and a romance which a lot of your books have romance in them. This is the story of a writer not unlike Andrew Sean Greer in some respects, named Arthur Less, who goes on a journey around the world, and we follow him on his journey as he thinks about his past. And I say it's not unlike because it's pretty obvious, at least to me, that there must be some crossover between this book and your own life over the past few years. So let's go back a little bit. The last book was Impossible Lives of Greta Wells. Okay, you finished that. What brings you on the journey, your own journey, to less? I had a different novel that I was working on before Greta Wells came out. It was a, another serious, poignant, wistful novel about a gay man approaching 50. It was sort of based on a Colette novel. I reached a point where I could not feel sorry for him at all because he was too close to me. I've never really written about a character really much like myself. And so I struggled with it for about a year. And the only way I could go into the novel was to ridicule him a little bit instead of pity him, you know? This is actually something within the novel itself, which we won't go into. But in terms of that earlier novel, which I guess is kind of similar to the novel at that point that Arthur Less is struggling with and that gets rejected. Was your novel rejected or did it not reach that point? No one ever read a a word of it. I think about two paragraphs of it remain in this novel, and that's it. But the basic storyline is similar? Somewhat, yeah. I had a friend made me, Daniel Handler, local writer, made me promise I wouldn't write another book that was full of research and spend years in a library. So I thought, I'm going to write a book that takes place in one day today in San Francisco. That's the book that Arthur Less has been writing. It's not exactly the one that I threw away. You do give Handler credit as one of the characters mentioned in the book. He doesn't actually appear in the book. But the book itself, Arthur Less is a character who had an older lover than a younger lover. And that relationship, the younger lover relationship, has just ended. And he's decided, screw it, got to get out of town. Younger guy's getting married. I don't want to be there. And he takes a whole bunch of acceptances to different places around the world. Even though, obviously, you didn't go around the world, 
in the same way he did. Are each of those stops kind of similar to stops you made on your various journeys? Some of them are very similar and some are complete inventions. I had two rules for myself writing this, and one was that I had to have been to the place and I couldn't put in any detail I hadn't actually taken notes on myself. So I couldn't imagine a monkey or a curtain or anything. I had to take down exactly what I saw. Okay, he goes off to New York. Is there an art bar? There is an art bar. Yeah. I didn't know about it. Uh, 8th Avenue. 8th Avenue at like uh, 12th? South of Chelsea. South of Chelsea. Yeah, it's still there. It's got a big mural of the Last Supper with like Jim Morrison and things that I think has been moved to the front. Is it a gay bar? No. But it was like a druggy bar back in the 90s when I lived there. Now it's cleaned up somewhat, although it's kind of straight couples make out drinking Prosecco in the back couches. That's the New York trip. I don't think there's anything in there that I didn't recognize. Then he goes to Mexico. Now, what was your actual time in Mexico? Were you there multiple times? I've been to Mexico City a lot, starting years ago. That's the part of Mexico I know. And when I tell people about it, they all say, oh, I thought they kind of were expecting me to talk about, I don't know, donkeys and sombreros. They're not aware that it's a world-class city much more elegant and cosmopolitan than our world-class cities in America. So I thought it'd be funny to send him there, ignorant of this, to an academic conference where he's the least educated in language and literature in the place. Have you met academics down there on your trip? No, that's invention. Not the trip to the pyramid, though. I have been to the pyramid, yeah. And then he flies off, gets to the Frankfurt airport, where I assume you've been as well then. Oh, many times. That's the one of the major ways United gets into Europe, yeah. And then Italy. Now, you are part of a writer's residence in Tuscany now? Yeah, I'm the director of a writer's residency in Tuscany, about an hour outside of Florence. It's only a year old I've been there. I'm there about six or seven months of the year when the writers are there to sort of take care of them. Did you write less there? Yeah, I started it there. So when you were writing the Italy section, you were actually in Italy. Yeah, most of these I was either in the place or I just left it. And then he goes to Germany where he teaches a class. Did you teach a class? I did teach a class. I sure <laughs> didn't teach that class. <laughs> That's the trouble about asking about autobiography in a, in a work of fiction is that people who know me, they think it's about what they recognize. But, of course, I'm just stealing scraps from everywhere and pasting them in the wrong places. So well, it's really not about me, even though it really looks like me. I would gather that your German probably is similar to Les's. Mine's much worse. It was pretty bad. I would say my Italian is similar to Les's in that I get along so well in Italian that I seem to think I speak it. And all the Italians are like, oh, you speak great Italian. But I can tell that I just sound like a fool. And they're just nice people. <laughs> but that also gives you an opportunity to play with language a little bit. Well, that was the fun of it. In foreign travel, books about that, writers make fun of the other people's English, when, of course, those people have learned your language in addition to their own. And we hardly ever learn someone else's. So I thought it'd be funnier if I gave Arthur the funny accent. There's another point there, which is he has a novel called Calypso, which didn't do too well in the U.S., but when translated into other languages, seems to have become a poetic masterpiece. <laughs> Obviously, there's humor in that, but at the same time, your books have been translated, I would assume? Yeah, yeah. 
And do you get those kinds of reactions? Well, I have no idea what has been wrought by the translator because my my ability to read foreign languages is so poor. So all I know is the response in that country, which is, of course, it's, it's self-intangible. So I can't tell if they've made a different book out of it. I always imagine, of course, being insecure that it's a success, that the translator is to thank for that. And if it's not a success, then they've translated it appropriately. Have you ever gotten any comments that kind of make you really question what the hell is going on? Or is it more or less just your own insecurity at work? My insecurity, and then sometimes people in other countries will play on your insecurity and tell you that it's a bad translation, that you should trust them. That's often a way to kind of try to undermine in foreign places, I find, is when a reader comes up and says, this is a terrible translation, could you please sign it for me? (laughs) Well, there are writers like Isabel Allende who have other people translate, and then they go through it And then they go through it. I know um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez did that, too, and and Nabokov clearly did that with his son. I don't have that ability. I could do it in Italian now a little bit. I'm trying to read my own books in Italian now, just to see. And what happens? They're unrecognizable to me because the sentences are so much longer. (laughs) It's fun because I kind of forget what happened. I'm trying to read The Confessions of Max Tivoli, which I haven't read in 12 years. I, I forget. How do you like it? It's kind of fun. It's hard because the language is Victorian also apparently in the Italian, which makes it pretty challenging. Andrew Sean Greer, after Germany, there's a one-day trip to Paris, which I would assume you've been to Paris, of course. I've been to Paris, but that didn't. none of that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes to Morocco and goes on a strange camel trip to a Swiss chalet. Is, is that real? You know, in each of these places, like Mexico, I tried to find something that is, goes against the cliché of the country. And so when I went to these countries, I was looking out for not what I expected, but the surprise. And we drove through it quickly, and it was not winter. But uh, indeed, there's a town that, that has a Swiss chalet, and it snows, and it's a ski town, and it is not what you're thinking of Morocco, or at least not what I, what I was thinking. But, you know, I'm full of predetermined ideas, and I was wrong again. So it fascinated me. But the rest of it, the camel trip and all of that is... Yeah, I didn't manage to get much outside of the normal tourist trip through Morocco. They kind of push you that way. Then I decided I would make fun of that normal tourist trip by having them drop like flies. The next stop on this trip, because we're moving toward the end of the trip now and the book, but we haven't really given the story away, so... Good. (laughs) And we won't. But India, he winds up at a very peculiar writer's retreat. Does that place exist? There are very few artist residencies in India. And there's one that I went to in Kerala that was lovely. I think, again, what I expected from India was not what I found in Kerala, which was a strong Christian community. So I thought it would be funny if he actually booked himself into a Christian retreat center, thinking he was going to this place of Hindu spiritualism or something, and instead he finds homegrown religion. Were you staying at a place on a cliff with a view like that? There was a view like that. Really, yeah, there was. Of the Arabian Sea, which is unswimmable. Undertow is so strong that um, it's deadly. I keep staying in places on the ocean that you can't swim in like that. <laughs> <laughs> but the view is good. It was a good place to get writing done. And then he winds up in Japan and does a uh, short food tour. 
of different restaurants now. In point of fact, you did a food tour in France, not in Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've done, I did a food somewhere tour somewhere else. I did go to Japan for an article for a United Airlines. And in fact, I pitched them the idea because I needed to go to Japan for the novel. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, at that point, I wasn't reacting to trips I was taking. I was trying to get someone else to pay for me to go places I couldn't afford to fly to. Well, well let's, let's go back a second, Andrew Sean Greer, since we have something here. How do you pitch to United? How did that work? I'd already written about Vietnam for, for them. them. And how did that come about? Only because a friend of mine, he just had a kid. He couldn't do the Vietnam article, and I was having a beer with him, and he mentioned it. And I said, me, me, tell him I'm free. I can go. I can go. That's often how these stupid things happen. It makes you realize that you have to, like, have beers with other writers more often. Who knows what other things aren't happening? And then United Airlines sent out to all their writers and said, pitch us ideas. And I needed to get to India and Japan. So I pitched them India and Japan. So what did you write about India? Ah, they didn't pick me for India. I had to get myself there. <laughs> that was tricky. I used the miles from the United flight to pay for a flight to India. When you got to India, did you go to one of the writers' retreat to see what it was like? Yeah, yeah, I did. It was also a good way for me to stay in one place. I didn't want to travel all over India. I thought I would get a really shallow view. So were you writing less at that point? I finished it. I oh, fin in I, India? In India. I wrote the Japan and India chapter in India. So you pitched this thing. You call them up. And what was the exact pitch for, for Japan? I don't know anything about Japan, right? So I just picked a place. I said I want to write about old-fashioned artisans in Kyoto. And I wrote to some friends who were knowledgeable, and I got the name of one, an indigo dye master there that I could try to get in touch with. They went for it. It was an amazing trip. How long was it? How long was the trip? Yeah. Five days. And you went to a Ryukan, I would assume, and got I, one of those meals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did get one of those meals. I stayed in about five different hotels, which was five days every night a different hotel. I'm not complaining, but there's a lot of movement. Did you do the Philosopher's Walk on, in Kyoto? I did. I and did. you saw the Golden Temple? Yeah. I loved it. That's the one place I really want to go back to. Japan really intrigued me. But, of course, everything that you do, it's all going to get into your work no matter what. Yeah. That's what I realized when I started working the travel into this novel I'd abandoned. So I'd already taken all these notes on some travel I was doing just out of anxiety, I think. The way some people go online on their iPad, I, I take notes in a notebook, and I realized I had all this material. And then I started just making the book out of that instead of this other thing I'd been planning. And the character of Arthur Less, you know, we start with Andrew Sean Greer, but obviously the background is different. You're not with an older poet. I don't know. No. <laughs> You've been with the same. You're married, right? Yeah. We've been together 20 years. <laughs> He's five years older than me. That seemed like a big difference 20 years ago. It's really <laughs> faded now. But there's also the idea of approaching 50. How old are you now? 46. 46. So you're starting to get up there. Well, because my friends are, have all turned 50 mostly already. I think I think about it ahead of time more than they did. They passed over it just fine. I think I'm ready for the 50s to be great and let go of a lot of things that I cared about in my 30s that I'm still hanging on to, I think. Arthur is doing well. He looks 35 and he's 50. 
Yeah, his health is fine. He's doing better than I am. One thing I found interesting, and I don't know if this was intentional, but at the beginning of the novel, we kind of feel we sort of a sad sack. But as time goes on, we realize nobody views him that way. Did that just develop as you began realizing, hey, this isn't a bad guy at all? I think that's what it was. I kept writing about him, and I thought about the people that he would meet. And I think Zora is the first character who says to him, you have the best life of anyone I know, because he's unable to to look on it. And in fact, the novel begins saying, from where I sit, the story of Arthur Less is not so bad. Because honestly, it's not. That's why it can be a little funny, even if it's poignant, because nothing terrible is happening to him. He's sort of doing it to himself. He's he's a good-looking, tall, good-looking, blonde guy who's kept his looks at the age of 50. He's had two very nice relationships. Yeah. And he's got the money, well, if not the money, at least the wherewithal to travel the world. That's not bad. And not he's bad. healthy. Yeah. And he still gets to work somewhat, although he's shot down at the beginning. I think when your publisher rejects your novel for a writer, it's devastating. Has that happened to you? Not exactly. I just had my British publisher reject this novel, but I think that's something that's going on in their publishing company, not with me. There's one line about it which caught my eye. Someone says that Arthur Less is a bad gay writer, and I kept thinking about novels like Story of Marriage and even Max Tivoli, and I kept thinking, Andrew Sean Greer is a gay novelist, but people who are gay novelists with capital G might look down on him. I mean, is that your imagination working, or is that something that you found? It is my imagination working. There's one writer who I admire a lot who gave a, she kind of gave me a speech about that a long time ago, well-meaning about the political implications of my work. And ever since then, there has been a silent critic in my head saying, is that really what you're going to do with this book? You're going to but the writer part of me is not interested in that silent critic. You know, I had to um, smother that person after I left college in order to actually write the books. So I think in this book, it's a part of me coming up and critiquing in a ridiculous manner. But I can also see it because I wrote a novel that didn't get published, which kind of ended my novelistic career. And someone said to me, you know, there's some gay stuff here, but you'd be a gay writer and you would have to deal with the politics of whatever's in your book. And yet I haven't had to. I mean, no one that I'm aware of has, I, I, I don't know, gone after me for politics in the work. But I think I can stand by them because I think that I write books with real characters that are developed and relatable and that you can't really see them as a, a kind of political propaganda because hopefully they have a few sides and that, that might either people enjoy the book enough to say, well, it was good, or they think I, they can't quite get a handle, hopefully. The other part of it is that do you always need to write about gay stuff? I mean, is that what a gay writer has to do? And the answer, I think, is no, you write what you need to write. And for me, it's actually, you know, I'm a strong left progressive, you know, activist from the old days. And yet I, I have been unable to put that in my fiction because I get too hot-headed and it just comes out straight propaganda. So I've never been able to do it. I've had trouble writing. I've always wanted to write like a great gay love story. Really hard. 
for me. So I've always had to go around it from the side. And like Story of a Marriage, there's a gay character and maybe another gay character, but I talk about it from the wife's point of view. That's the only way I could get in. And somehow this book turns out to be a gay love story, even though I didn't know that's what I was going to be doing for the beginning, I think because I didn't try to go at it straight on. Did you know the ending fairly early on? I did know, yeah. (laughs) Don't give it away. Writing a comic novel versus writing, say, the romances and the books you've written before, was there any difference for you other than just being able to read what you've written and cracking up every so often? I think the difference is that my flaws in what could be my flaws in my other books that my editors would pare back on, which is purple prose and sentimentality, love them both, but indulge in them perhaps a lot, at least in early drafts. Here, those become strengths because purple prose, if you keep writing it just a little too long, it's a funny sentence that's way too long and complicated. And somehow with a comic novel, you can, at least I could get much closer to emotions of, for instance, joy that's really hard to write about than I could in the other ones where I would try to write about joy and it would just come off like a someone's just high, <laughs> you know, like way too, too much and phony and I'd have to cut it. But here it was, I could really get as close as I've ever gotten. Did you make any lo- large cuts? I cut all of Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam I was had a chapter a, in the book. I had a whole chapter in Vietnam. I went there twice. So what happened to him in Vietnam that you had to cut? It's not what happened to him. It was pacing. It was the pacing of the novel. In fact, what happened to him now happens in Japan. I just moved the whole scene, and I got rid of everything else about the chapter, which was pretty funny. Well, but. I got the feeling Japan itself was probably a longer sequence, too. Yeah, it was. There was a lot more. But I just decided with a comic, slightly comic book, it needs to end more quickly. My other books have long, elaborate endings, and I was like, not for this one. There's another problem, too, which is that you're on two tracks here, which is Arthur wandering around these places, and at the same time, we have Arthur's memory of his earlier days, which feed into what he's thinking about now going back to the U.S. and what's happening there. And what I found myself doing is saying, okay, what is going on with Arthur and the people he knows? And that grows as the book goes on, which means you have to shorten the other stuff in order to keep the pacing right. Is that right? That's exactly right. I had a whole sequence in Japan that I thought was the ending of the novel, and then I realized that's not what a reader would care about. They want to see Robert. And so I cut it all and put put a whole different scene in there. And that's when Robert came in. Yeah. And I was like, how do I get Robert to Japan? It's <laughs> like, oh, not that easy. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I didn't plan this very well. I got my guy on the other side of the world. Yeah. When you did that, did that mean you wanted to go back to Mexico and add the sequence involving Miriam? Exactly. Yeah. No, I had Miriam already. Adding Miriam at the end was the novelty. And I also, I hadn't had Miriam in Mexico supposed to be at the conference. All of that, I started to add Miriam back in some more. But you do that in revision. You find something and you need to go through the whole novel, you know, when you get rid of other stuff. As you write it, in, in any of your works, but in this one in particular, as you're writing it, 
do you see what you're finding out about, say, Arthur or other main characters more your invention, or do you kind of feel like you're discovering something that's already there? It it seems so phony to say it's the second one, and yet it really, everyone must tell this to you, that it feels that way, that the more I relax and stop trying to come up with something clever and just write the scene that I'm seeing in my head, like there's a scene at the beginning with Miriam on the beach, not very complicated scene, much more simple, like I'm taking it down the way it really happened, although, of course, it's all invention. Those are the best ones, the less clever I try to be. And that happens later in the writing process. What I've found is when people talk about characters taking over, what they really mean is that they know their character so well that they sort of know what the character's going to do. It's not that the character's taking over. It's that the character becomes clear to them. It's, it must be it, what actors must sometimes feel after playing a character for a long time, that they can they can actually, like on a TV show, they start t- helping the writers write the character because they know the kind of thing they do. So, yeah, it feels that way, which is a great relief when you're able to get finally get a scene and know exactly what Arthur would do or what how Robert would talk. That was nice after a while. Well, you mentioned before that you do these magazine pieces, and some of them are actually posted on your website. How do you feel about writing nonfiction versus fiction? I thought I wouldn't be any good at it, but I was broke, so I thought I better give this a shot. What I can't do is write fiction on commission, like have someone say, hey, could you write a story for us about angels? That would never work because I I don't know. I Unless I actually really want to do it, it's not going to happen. But turns out the nonfiction, I can do it. I still have to care. So I had to really care about artisans. In Kyoto, which I did, they were amazing. It was easy to write. And Vietnam? That was harder. That was harder because I had to find a story. And I can only write in first person in these nonfiction things, which they don't always like. But, you know, you just put a little first person. What was the Vietnam one? I had a friend who was part of the airlift of orphans out of Saigon, and he had wanted me to go back and find the place on the river where he'd been left and where a nun found him and brought him to the helicopter, which I did. Did he go with you? No, no, no. He's, he was in Berlin. He, he's never been back. So it was moving for me. Did you take pictures for him and send them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, it doesn't look like anything. But he knew specifically where it was and where the orphanage was and that kind of thing. And that was published by United? United Airlines, yeah. But that was my only way in was that as a structure for a story about a really interesting city. And what about writing food stories? That also was another way in because I care about food. So I talked myself into Savar Magazine's building and persuaded them to let me write things. Do you get scared when these these things publish that somebody will like see through the ruse? I assume they're going to see through the ruse. <laughs> I think usually when I write these things, I write it with a sense of humor about myself. That's usually the tone I take. I usually involve my mom, who's a chemist, so that she can be the smart one in the article. I wrote an article about bread for Popular Mechanics, where I clearly don't know anything, and my mother is teaching me how to bake bread, and she's very frustrated with me. And short stories. Uh, you've written a few. Yeah, but I haven't done it in a while. This started off, I guess, in a way, short stories, in its first 
early versions of these chapters, but I really love a novel. I love that payoff of something that keeps accumulating over time on a big canvas. Have you ever tried plays or screenplays? Only in college. I don't think I'm good at that because I think I'm what I'm worst at is dialogue. The things that I think I'm good at with description or language are in the stage directions <laughs> where no one can see them. When I went to IMDb, I found a very curious note. Madonna was planning to make a movie of the impossible lives of Greta Wells. Is that on IMDb? Yeah. Still planning as far as I know. Did you ever meet her? No, I talked to her on the phone. What did she say? Very technical questions about electroconvulsive therapy. Very intelligent, informed conversation about something very specific that'd be boring to anyone else. How did the call come? Did it come out of the blue? Did someone say Madonna's going to be calling you? They did, yeah. They set it up and, <laughs> and tell you what time it's going to happen. And uh, I've waited my whole life for that call, and it was about electroconvulsive therapy, you know? <laughs> it's, things don't go the way you expect, but it was, it was uh, pleasant, yeah. Andrew Sean Greer, now you've written less. Two questions. First of all, do you ever think about coming back to this character? That's an interesting question. Yeah, it was really hard to walk away from. After I got into it, so natural to write that way. The last time I remember feeling that way was the Max Tivoli novel 12 years ago. I didn't want to leave it. And I had nightmares about him taking his top hat off and saying goodbye, ridiculous kind of things. So I haven't really left it yet, you know. I still haven't started my next book because I'm, uh, I've enjoyed it. I've also been working in Italy, so I haven't been <laughs> writing. So I'm still in it. It was very pleasant. If you had met... Arthur Less, what would be your feelings toward him, you think? You think you'd be attracted to him? I don't find him attractive. I don't think so. Maybe it's being an identical twin. Like, he doesn't, to me, look like me. Right, yeah. Exactly. I think anyone else would think we would look alike, but, you know, so he wouldn't be my type. We could be good friends. Maybe <laughs> make a mistake over a bottle of wine one night, but that's it. So you haven't started working on another book? I haven't. I've scribbled away at something. Again, I take a lot of notes and then look back and see what have I been interested in. So I'm still taking notes. Do you have any uh, travel or other articles coming up? Then? I leave tomorrow for New York to write about the Carlisle Hotel. And what about politics? Have you ever thought about writing about politics as an activist? I think I'm bad at it. I'm bad at arguments. When I get in arguments, I get too hot-headed and ill-informed. I'm like your worst activist. There's so many better people who are better on Twitter, other writers I admire, like Alexandra Chi, who do so well in that form. And I think I just, somehow I don't have the skill for it. I'll do the, the backup, you know? They can crash at my house. I'll provide the <laughs> microphones. I don't think I'm good out front on that stuff. I really wish I were. I did it a lot in college and after college, and I, I think I don't have, you have to be a little cool you need to be the coolest person in the room and sharp and smart, and that's not me. You also need to have a very thick skin, I think. I do not have that. Why the name Arthur Less? I enjoyed it very much as a silly joke. The joke plays out at the end of the book. Was that where it came from? I have some friends whose last name is, is Less, in fact, who live here in the East Bay, and... Of course, these are the most like confident young men you could know with this this funny name that we've all thought was like a perfect for them because it slightly undercuts. And so I took it, and then I thought, well, his first name has to be Art. 
And then I just enjoyed it. It's a bad pun throughout the book, and I hope the readers understand that I know it's a bad pun, <laughs> that that's the point. That also, I fought for the title to be kept as less. My publisher wanted to, to change it. They thought that it could be made fun of in reviews too much. And I thought, no, because I want it to be about acceptance of oneself in, the, in a silly way. I, that's, for me, what it needs to be titled. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. You can send comments and questions to Richard Walensky at bookwaves at hotmail.com or by going to the Bookwaves with Richard Walensky Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>